I'm sure it's not a new bit of information, it's not a new little biblical factoid uh, for me to tell you that one of the primary ways in which Jesus taught his followers and those he encountered was through parables. A parable is a story drawn from real-life circumstances with a spiritual point. Many parables have an agricultural theme. This particular parable, probably one of the most famous of Jesus' parables, has a bit of a traveling theme to it. This morning, we hear from Jesus in his, one of his most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And because it's so well known, I think it's important for us just to pause for a moment and recognize something about Scripture when we think we know it so very well. With any well-known passage of Scripture, we can think that we know it so well that we actually forget what occurs within it, or we can think that we know it so well that we can become too casual with our approach to it and thus miss the point of it altogether. And I fear that with something like the Good Samaritan, that could happen. Often enough, also, when, when we read Scripture, we want to find ourselves in the hero place. We want to find ourselves in the good spot. The problem is, we really aren't the hero. We really aren't in the good spot. For example, in the story of David and Goliath, we want to read ourselves into the feet, the sandals of David. We want to be the hero empowered by God slaying the enemies. But folks, Biblically speaking, that's where Jesus fits, not you or me. We're actually, in that story of David and Goliath, we're actually the Israelites who are hiding uh, afraid of the giant. We're the Israelites who need someone to fight our battles for us. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, we really have to fight the temptation. We really have to fight the desire to find ourselves filling the sandals of the Good Samaritan. Because, folks, the Good Samaritan in the parable, that's where Jesus fits, not you and not me. Folks, we're either the lawyer or we're the man dying in the ditch. And in either case, we need Jesus. There are two fundamental areas of need shown in this well-known parable, and they both present challenges to Jesus' audience then and Jesus' audience now. The first challenge that we have to see here is the impossible task that Jesus gives. And the second, the second challenge is the noble ethic that Jesus expects. The parable of the Good Samaritan shows us in both the impossible task and in the noble ethic, the parable shows us our absolute need for Jesus. And it does call us to action, calls us to be neighbors. And so let's consider first the impossible task which reveals our need for Jesus. St. Luke does absolutely nothing for us to give us any context for this particular conversation. He just simply dives right into an encounter between Jesus and a lawyer, an expert of Jewish law. Sometimes in other gospels referred to as a scribe. In chapter 10, verse 25, we read this. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The implication is that this is not a private conversation. This is a public encounter. And very publicly, the lawyer stood up. 
to ask Jesus a question. And right away, let's pay attention to some details. Right away, let's notice two things about the lawyer and the question that he asks. First, the lawyer was up to something. I'm not going to make any lawyer jokes this morning. (laughs) But the lawyer is up to something. Luke tells us, St. Luke tells us, he's testing Jesus. He's trying to trap Jesus. He wants to get Jesus befuddled, or he wants to see Jesus contradict something or affirm something. He wants to see Jesus in a corner. How will Jesus respond to this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Will Jesus respond in a way that is consistent with the tradition, or will he break new ground and really tick some people off? Will Jesus endorse what is expected in the law, or will Jesus do away with legal requirements? He's seeking to test Jesus. And the second aspect of this, this verse, of chapter, of verse 25 of chapter 10, the second aspect to notice here is the flaw in the very nature of his question. What's he asked Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Folks, the question is flawed because of the very nature of what an inheritance is. What can anyone do to receive an inheritance? Scholar and author Kenneth Bailey points out this flaw when he writes, Inheritance, by its very nature, is a gift from one family member to another. If you're born into a family or perhaps adopted into it, then you can inherit. Inheritance is not payment for services rendered. The questioner in this story is a religious lawyer who's fully aware, uh, fully aware of such things. We have a man here, this lawyer, with questionable motives, asking a flawed question coming to Jesus. And that probably reflects how most of us approach Jesus ourselves. And in his grace and his mercy, Jesus responds to the lawyer on the lawyer's terms, and he shows him the better way. In verse 26 of Luke chapter 10, Jesus says to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. The lawyer quotes two passages from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5, that bit about loving God. And he quotes Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18, that bit about loving your neighbor. That's the standard set in the law of God found in the Old Testament that's affirmed by Jesus as the greatest commandment. Love your God with all of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus says, do this and you will live, he is not endorsing the possibility for anyone to earn salvation. Rather, what he's doing is pointing out the impossibility of the task. He's challenging the lawyer on the lawyer's own terms. No one, the lawyer included, and the lawyer is going to very soon implicate himself in guilt. No one can keep the law with perfection. And thus, no one, by this standard, according to the lawyer's terms, no one can earn the inheritance of eternal life. So the lawyer responds in his attempt of self-justification. We we see just how far off he, he truly is from loving his neighbor. Luke tells us, in an attempt to justify himself, he asks, who is my neighbor? 
seeking to pronounce himself as right before Jesus and those others who are in the crowd, seeking to pronounce himself as right with God, the lawyer seeks to limit the requirement of loving neighbor. He seeks to limit the scope of obligation. He seeks to build a fence around who's in and who's out. And here again, the lawyer has asked the wrong question. Here again, the lawyer shows how much he is like us. And here again, the lawyer shows the depth of his need. You see, he doesn't love his neighbor. And more fundamentally, the lawyer doesn't love God with all that he is. This is where Jesus launches into the parable of the Good Samaritan to show to the lawyer, to show to the crowd, to show us true hope in the face of the impossible task and the noble ethic expected of his people. Now, we know the details of the parable very well. A man who's assumed to be an average Jewish man from Jerusalem was going down to Jericho where he was beaten, he was robbed, and he was left dying in the ditch. Two leaders within the Jewish faith came by, a priest and a Levite. Both saw the man, both crossed to the other side of the road to avoid helping the man dying in the ditch. And there's been a lot of speculation as to their motives. But Luke doesn't tell us in Jesus' mouth, Jesus doesn't tell us what their motive was in avoiding helping. No motive is needed. The focus is on what they didn't do. That's the stress. They both saw the man in deep need. His life was in danger, and they crossed to the other side of the road and avoided him. Verse 33 is really the focal point of the entire parable. Verse 33 is where Jesus says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He had what the priest and the Levite did not have. He saw and he acted. In the rest of the parable, Jesus reveals that the lawyer's question was upside down. You see, the lawyer was worried about who he had to love, who he was obligated to love, who he was obligated to care for, who was inside of the fence and who was outside of the fence, and that's who he could ignore. But Jesus is concerned to show the lawyer, he's concerned to show us what it means to actually be a neighbor, not about the identification of a neighbor. In his compassion, the Samaritan interrupted his plans and his journey. He used his own oil and his own wine. He used whatever he had to create bandages, perhaps part of his own clothing. He took the injured man on his own animal to an inn and took care of him at his own expense. And then when he went back to his own journey, he gave two days' wages to the innkeeper for whatever expenses may occur with the promise that he would pay up what was owed when he returned. Jesus drives the point home when he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? It's not about who you are to love. Rather, it is about how you love those you you encounter who are in need. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's given the lawyer an impossible task. He's given us an impossible task. The lawyer cannot love God and neighbor well enough to receive eternal life. And Jesus shows him that he is not loving his neighbor properly in the parable. And in this, what Jesus is doing by revealing this impossible task is that he is pulling back the curtain upon our deepest needs, upon the lawyer's deepest need. He shows us what kind of help we need. Unexpected help from an outsider who is willing to show compassion and render aid regardless of the cost 
to self. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus. You see, Jesus, in the example of the Samaritan, is talking about himself. He is pointing toward his death upon in the, in the crucifixion. The religious leaders of the Jewish people failed while the saving agent was the outsider, one who was despised, one who was considered as nothing. More to the point, the outsider saved through great cost to himself, giving all that he had for the rescue of the man dying in the ditch. The lawyer of Luke chapter 10, like us all, needed to realize that he is the man dying in the ditch, that we are the men dying in the ditch. Far from being the hero of this parable, we are the ones who need the most help. When it comes to our ability to be justified before God, we are incapable of doing that which is necessary. We cannot do the law. As one commenter, commentator has explained, we know that no man can ever inherit eternal life on the grounds of his own merit. But God be praised that Christ Jesus, as man, lived a life of complete love towards God and men, and as the entirely innocent one, endured death for us on the cross, forsaken by God, so that by faith we are absolved from the death we deserve and inherit eternal life. The issue isn't with the law. The issue is our sinful inability to keep the law. The lawyer is like the priest who passed by. The lawyer is like the man dying in the ditch who could not save himself. He can't do enough of the law with the perfection necessary to receive eternal life. He cannot save himself, and neither can we. We are left beaten and robbed by our own sin, by our own assertion of autonomous rule. We are, in St. Paul's words, dead in our sins. And so in this sense, the parable of the Good Samaritan points us toward Jesus, the greatest hero, the greatest neighbor that we need. The parable points us toward Jesus who, moved by compassion, saw the need of humanity, entered into humanity as the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, giving of himself and all that he had in his death and resurrection to heal our sorry estate. To love God with all of our being necessarily means to acknowledge that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that Jesus is the revelation of the Father. This impossible task that Jesus lays out for us shows us the depth of our need that we might be justified by Him responding to the gospel of good news, what God has done for sinful humanity to save. That we can respond to that by faith in Jesus, be adopted into God's family in Jesus through the Holy Spirit, and there, as a son and daughter of God, receive the inheritance of eternal life based not upon what we may do, but solely upon what he has already done. The Good Samaritan says far more than we think it does. It reveals an impossible task which reveals our need for Jesus. But at the same time, it gives to us a noble ethic. The last thing of this entire passage the last thing, the last word goes to Jesus. At the end of verse 37, Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. We can't really miss the point here, can we? Loving God with all that we are and being a neighbor by showing compassion and mercy to those in need are related. They're interconnected. 
And we cannot be a neighbor without loving God first. And unless we're intentional about it, we won't be a neighbor to those in need. And so this noble ethic to which uh, God's people and Jesus are called is laid out. And a few comments, a few thoughts here will suffice as we reflect upon Jesus saying, you go and do likewise. Let's think first about what it means for the hero to be the Samaritan. By making the hero a Samaritan and the victim presumably a Jewish man, Jesus has exploded any place of racial bias or prejudice. When it comes to showing mercy and compassion, there is no place to determine the giving of such kindness based on race in this noble ethic. For the Jewish people of Jesus' day, sharing a meal with a Samaritan person was as equally repugnant as eating bacon. To share a meal with a Samaritan was to, eat, was to be as bad as eating pork. Both were unclean. Both rendered the, pers- the person unclean. And yet, what does Jesus do to that perspective when the Samaritan is played in such a high role? A man named Thomas Long tells the story of an odd picture he once found in his grandmother's home. In the sitting room of her antebellum South Carolina home, among the old photographs depicting a genealogy of the family, was a Civil War-era photo of a young Union Army officer. Mr. Long wondered, what is a picture of a Yankee soldier doing in such a place as this? Shortly before she died, Mr. Long's grandmother told him the story, which he records this way. The man in the photograph was a chaplain in the Union Army. In May of 1862, after the smoke had cleared from the field of battle at Williamsburg, Virginia, this chaplain rode out onto the field on his horse to see if there were any wounded troops who had been left behind. And he came across a 19-year-old Confederate soldier lying wounded and terrified in a ditch. The boy had taken a bullet that had practically severed his leg at the knee, and he was slowly bleeding to death. Feeling compassion even for the enemy, the chaplain lifted the boy out of the ditch, put him on his horse, and took him to the Union medical tent, where a surgeon amputated his leg at the knee, bandaged him up, stopped the bleeding, and saved his life. When the boy was strong enough to travel, this chaplain got together enough money to see that he was sent home to his grateful and relieved parents in South Carolina. Mr. Long goes on to state, This 19-year-old Confederate soldier grew up to be a minister himself, a teacher, a college president, and what is most significant to me, my great-grandfather. No one had to preach the parable of the Good Samaritan to my family. We had lived it. Destroying all prejudices. Destroying any mindset, any heart condition that would count some people as worthy and some people as unworthy to receive love and mercy. That's what the noble ethic looks like, and that we need Jesus' help to overcome. We need Jesus to overcome the prejudices that would count people as unworthy of love and mercy. We need Jesus to live this noble ethic, to be a neighbor to any in need. And we need Jesus because he is the one who gifts the Holy Spirit that changes our hearts. Second, in recording the Samaritan's actions, Jesus shows the extent to which his people are called to love. The Samaritan interrupts his schedule. He gives of his own material goods and finances in order to meet the need of the dying man. 
There seemingly isn't anything else he could give. He gave everything he had. He gave all that he could. And now we've already seen that this points us toward Jesus who gave all for our rescue. And so we need to see that the noble ethic lays out what we are to give as well. We are to do all that we can, when we can, for all that we can. Sometimes it looks weird and sometimes it's different. Sometimes it may not seem like it's enough, but we are called to do all that we can. In a book called The Fall of Fortresses, author Elmer Bendiner describes a bombing run over the German city of Kessel. He was an American uh, airman. He says this, Our B-17 was barraged by flak from Nazi anti-aircraft guns. That was not unusual, but on this particular occasion, our gas tanks were hit. Later, as I reflected on the miracle of a 20-millimeter shell piercing the fuel tank without touching off an explosion, our pilot, Bon Fox, told me it was not quite that simple. On the morning following the raid, Bon had gone down to ask our crew chief for the shell as a souvenir of unbelievable luck. The crew chief that, uh, said that not just one shell, but 11 had been found in the gas tanks. 11 unexploded shells were only, where only one was sufficient to blast us out of the sky. It was as if the sea had been parted for us, he says. He was told that the shells had been sent to the armorers to be defused. The armorers told him that intelligence had come and picked them up. They could not say why at the time, but Bond eventually sought out the answer. Apparently, when the armorers opened each of those shells, they found no explosive charge. They were as clean as a whistle, but just as harmless. Empty. Not all of them. One contained a carefully rolled piece of paper. On it was a scrawl in Czech. The intelligence people scoured our base for a man who could read Czech. Find, eventually, they found one to decipher the note. It said us marveling. Translated, the note read, This is all we can do for you now. We need Jesus to live the noble ethic. We need Jesus' example. We need his gift of the Holy Spirit to create in us hearts that are willing to give in this way, to do what we can, when we can, for those to whom we can. Third, we, need, we do need to use our wisdom in our helping. The Samaritan gave of himself, and he gave richly. He helped someone who would have most likely considered him to be unclean. He did what he could, and then he went on his own way. This does require wisdom. We need wisdom from above because sometimes helping hurts because it enables a systemic behavior. Sometimes the help that a person actually needs isn't the problem of the symptom. Sometimes the help a person actually needs is the resolution of an underlying cause of the problem itself. We have to have wisdom to recognize this and to address the right thing in the right way. And sometimes the need is so great that no one single person can actually do the help. Sometimes we need a collection of people, and we need wisdom to understand that. We need wisdom to discern what is properly to be done. We need wisdom to understand when it should properly be done. Sometimes we need wisdom to shut our mouths. Sometimes the need is simply the ministry of presence, the ministry of showing up to be with a lonely or grieving person. Our wisdom is needed to figure out what exactly compassionate mercy looks like in any given situation. And here again, 
Because we need wisdom, we need Jesus to live this noble ethic. We need his model, we need his Holy Spirit. The impossible task shows us our need for Jesus to be justified before God by the outsider who saves. The noble ethic shows us a way to live and our need for Jesus, empowered by his gift of the Holy Spirit, to love who we ought to love, to love when and how we ought to do it. Let's conclude this morning just by simply thinking a bit applicationally if we can. We've seen this morning that the Good Samaritan lays out an impossible task and a noble ethic, both of which point to our need for Jesus. We need Jesus to save us. We need Jesus to empower us that we may be neighbors who show love and tender mercy to all we encounter. Now, folks, this plays right into what we talked about last week. All who believe and follow Jesus are sent on Jesus' mission. If you didn't hear last week's sermon, check out our podcast But in that sermon, as we looked at the first 20 verses of of Luke chapter 10, we saw that all who believe and follow Jesus are sent on Jesus' mission to proclaim the kingdom of God. We saw last week that the mission of proclaiming the kingdom of God so often begins with relationship, necessarily a relationship to Jesus, and then that proclamation ministry, that mission, is worked out within a relationship to others. Relationship begins with neighborliness. Relationship begins with loving others in their needs, with wisdom, with the heart of Jesus, with works, and doing what we can to be merciful. And so it is, to be a church that glorifies God by blessing people with gospel ministries, that they may believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and join us in building His kingdom requires relationship. Relationship requires neighborliness to those we encounter Neighborliness to those we encounter requires the life of Jesus in us by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. The parable of the Good Samaritan shows us our need for Jesus just as it calls us to action, to be neighbors. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy and gracious God, we praise you. We praise you for Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. We praise you that in our time of need, as we lie dying in the ditch, Jesus came. As the outsider who comes and rescues us, pulling us up and giving us life, we praise you. And we pray that we might know Jesus as our Savior, and that we might, in that place of relationship with Christ, be gifted and powered by the Holy Spirit to love as we have been loved. To see people in need, to meet those needs in the name of Christ. Help us, Lord, with opportunity to build relationship. Help us with opportunity to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand, that Jesus may be glorified. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We continue our worship this morning as we stand together and sing.